Hi again, I'm Mario Antiveros. And I'm Shauna Lutger. Welcome back to Extras, Artists, and Rights. Each episode brings a group of artists around a table to talk together about what art can do. They share strategies for reaching across the boundaries of their disciplines, how they build bridges, how they work collectively, and how they create supportive conditions and opportunities. So this is the last episode of the series, and I just want to take a minute to acknowledge that and to say it's been such an amazing journey putting this together and a real honor to work with you, Mario, and with each of the artists. Mm, thank you, Sean. I feel the same way. It's been a pleasure to collaborate with you as well. I'm so grateful to have been able to participate in this project and especially to be able to work so closely with you and these amazing artists. Yeah, there was a real generosity and openness in these talks, and it's been remarkable to us. I mean, I think we've said it before, but just how strong and clear the vision and the strategies of the artists were and remain today. Mm, and a lot of thought went into the format. We began with four basic rights to help frame this series of conversations. The right to organize, the right to be seen, the right to make a living, the right to claim space. Our goal was to leave our meetings with a set of questions, topics, or issues from which we could develop, maybe as a small group or even a cluster of smaller groups, and through that, create several public-facing programs. The world has shifted significantly under our feet since the recordings were made in December and February, but I do really hope we can carry this work forward in some way. I also just want to say a special thanks to Sarah Fowler, who is our editorial intern on this project. Um, she's been a key player in presenting the material and putting together the transcripts and web pages for each of the artists on our site. So be sure to check them out at extraonline.org slash artists and rights. And now let's get to episode eight, committing to showing up and shifting frameworks. We welcome back Zachary Drucker, Ari Lee, Sandra de la Loza, and Jacqueline Romine. In this episode, the artists continue their conversation about visibility and access, and woven through their talk are issues of vulnerability and accountability, as well as privilege and art washing. They talk about their paths to Los Angeles and to their current work and how their frameworks have shifted and adapted at key points to address new urgencies. Ari says, one of the roles of the artist is to counteract the deficiencies in the world around them. And Zachary tells us we're really called upon in this moment to create a new structure in which everybody is provided for and everybody's needs are provided for. Yeah, the artists debate various tactics to ensure access, activate imagination, and create alternative models for living today. Both Zachary and Ari ask us to consider how we're all connected and that there's no such thing as an individual good. There's only collectivism. This conversation was recorded in February 2020 before the global pandemic and mass uprisings in the name of racial justice and against police brutality. You can find more information about this podcast, the artists and their work on Extra's website at extraonline.org. All right, so welcome back, everybody. Um, I mean, one of the things we talked about um, was the changing notion of the artist. Um, and during our break, we talked a little bit about uh, the different strategies um, of producing work that might not be object-based or um, have any physical manifestation. And Sandra, you had talked a little bit about this idea of the embedded artist uh, and issues around positionality. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah, so so actually that came up because currently I'm an artist in residence uh, in the Alley County Department of Parks and Recreation. So um, I'm kind of a guinea bit pig for a new program called the Creative Strategist Program. Uh, and it's funded by the county supervisors to implement a, initiative called Culture, Equity, the Culture, Equity, and Inclusion Initiative. And so the whole idea of, of this program is to embed artists in different county departments. So um, the, the county departments were invited to um, develop a proposal uh, for an artist in residence, one-year program. And uh, my department, Parks and Rec, um, wrote a proposal to invite an artist in to create an arts and cultural framework uh, for the, the county park system. Um, and they want 
art and culture to be a core program. So when we think of parks, like uh, uh, terms of um, public offerings, tons and tons of sports programming, but arts and cultural programming kind of nil, not not there. So. So I was invited in to research, um, to get to know the, the department, and then to envision what uh, arts and cultural framework can look like for the department. So yeah, it's been a super interesting experience. I never um, really saw myself as someone embedded in uh, a county institution, uh, but really interesting experience uh, to have this opportunity to possibly impact infrastructure at that at that scale. Sandra, are you allowed to talk about some of the, the things you're envisioning in this this artist, um, I forget what the term was he used. The um, um, creative strategist. Stra program. Creative strategist program. Well, the, the, the county park system um, is a huge system. It's like, uh, it's a huge department. Um, actually, L LA County Parks, I think, is the largest landholder in Southern California. Um, so over 108 urban parks, but in terms of facilities, like over 200 uh, facilities, because it includes uh, botanical gardens, it includes dams, it includes rivers, it includes uh, um, nature centers. Um, you know, and so one thing that really struck me about um, um, the county park system was um, was like it, just in kind of the legacies of neoliberalist policies, how much of the public se sector has just been whittled down. So like basically like parks and libraries are one of the few public resources that is open and accessible to, to our public and especially to the por poorest communities and, and, and most disenfranchised, disenfranchised communities in, in the county. Um, so, um, so the framework I'm developing, one is I think it's super important to um, in, invite in local artists and also uh, to um, place local cultural practices at the center. At the center. Um, so, so definitely artists with the capital A, um, I'm looking at practices and, and, and what offerings like uh, pedagogical projects might be interesting in a park con context. But I'm really kind of expanding my idea of what art, art, art and cultural framework art and cultural framework can be and really kind of centering everyday people's mm -hmm. cultural practices and, and knowledges, you know. So so all the, so say weaving knowledge from Guatemala would be amazing programming. So so my hope is that the, the uh, county, the, 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 the LADPR um, really invest in a cultural asset mapping program. So where they really kind of go out and look at the cultural practices that are in, in uh, local communities and, and invite those in and bring, make those front and center of arts and cultural program. It seems like there's so much cultural activity that's not documented by you know, the, the powers that be that could be made visible in that process. And, and supported and highlighted and celebrated, yeah. So, um, yeah, so we've talked a little bit about arts, art worlds, and I, maybe this goes to your question of visibility, like whose art gets is, is made visible, whose creative practices and creative knowledge is recognized, um, and, um, and whose who's, who's isn't, you know, and so, like, I, I you know, you don't have to um, have an MFA to be an artist. I think um, one thing that has always struck me about LA is just how creative um, people are, how creative communities are. Actually, uh, uh, I was working on a mural with my brother when I was 18 or 19 years old. And uh, it was amazing, like like every day we'd have just people come by from the community and, and uh, ask about the mural and then share their artwork. So everyday people are making uh, artworks. LA has a huge history 
of lineages of of art art and cultural practices that never get get recognized and haven't been documented. Um, so I think it's a fallacy that to to that visibility is important or is essential. I think things are alive and get passed that down uh, and continue whether they're recognized or not. And and definitely in the case of like. Uh, art and cultural production in areas like South, South Central and, and, and East LA, which I'm most familiar with. But that doesn't mean that, that um, those, those lineages, those gene genealogies don't deserve to be uh, historicized, supported, and, and recognized. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's so fascinating that your family has been in Los Angeles for generations because Los Angeles is also, you know, such a city that people adopt, that people move to, and it feels like there's been such an exodus to Los Angeles, especially amongst an art community from other major cities. And then I travel often, I go to other cities where they're talking about how Angelinos are moving to Seattle, to Portland, to Austin, mm -hmm. to Tucson. Um, you name it, you know, any kind of Western city, Salt Lake City, um, you know, where, where people are kind of witnessing the ways in which uh, property ownership changes uh, the landscape. <clears throat> and so sometimes when people tell me that they're moving here, <laughs> I used to be like, oh, the more the merrier. And increasingly, I feel speechless in those situations because I feel like the homeless population has gotten so enormous in Los Angeles and it's because of this constant influx of people here and like the traffic is palpably worse than it was 10 years ago like the, we're, we're witnessing visually the impact on our city of having you know more and more people um that said south dakota state legislature today is voting to outlaw um you know pediatric treatment of gender identity disorder to make it illegal for a doctor to treat a young person with gender identity disorder, um, punishable by 10 years in prison. And as uh, federal courts have been stacked with conservative justices, living in a state like California as a trans or non-binary person will become increasingly a matter of survival. Um, you know, depending on what happens with the Supreme Court, it, it, it seems as though within our lifetime it might be difficult for any, you know, federal ruling that goes to the Supreme Court that it's not going to land in favor of people who live in California, let's just say. Let's just say, you know, people who are outside of the dominant classes. Um, so you know, will we see migrations of people based on, you know, their physical safety? Um, you know, will we see uh, young trans people, you know, from all over the country having to make it to California in order to be who they are? It's been incredible to live here for 15 years. I feel like it's very much my adopted home. And to witness it change and evolve so rapidly. And of course, artists are always more able to see around the corner than other people. I think that we are often visionaries and dreamers. And, you know, we're really called upon in this moment to create a new structure in which everybody is provided for everybody's needs are provided for. How long have you lived in LA? My whole life. Yeah. I'm born and raised here. My, my mom's side of the family is from uh, Boyle Heights and my dad's side of the family is from Lincoln Heights and they're all originally from Texas and then from Mexico. <laughs> what witnesses, what changes have you witnessed, Jacqueline? Uh, since I've been here, I think my framework is different because I have 
spent a um, majority of my life as an able-bodied person and um, having a force change to be a disabled person because of a an accident, I have had to change my framework completely in visualizing what a city can and cannot do for its people because as an able-bodied person, it, you can get around Los Angeles very fluidly for the most part unless you actually need to take public transportation and then you are circumvented with a lot uh, harder ways to be able to get around the city as an able-bodied or disabled person. Um, so... I don't know. The changes for me have been very different. Um, seeing things, uh, being able to get to and from um, in a safe way uh, on public transportation was my first route of being able to get around Los Angeles in a safe way. And then being able to drive. Um, I was put, I'm, I'm a very privileged person in a, who is disabled because I have the opportunity and the access to a vehicle that I can drive. And um, being able to do that around Los Angeles is just like a normal thing that uh, everybody can do. But having that um, has made me be a lot more free than I thought it could possibly be. And the changes that I've seen take place from before I was disabled until now and the landscape of Los Angeles before and now um, when there is new inf it, when there's new gentrified infrastructure it is required for it to be accessible to the disabled body but just because it is physically accessible to the disabled body it does not mean that the surrounding communities that live within this gentrified space can actually afford anything in that institution so there's like this weird thing that happens is that when areas are gentrified, they become more physically accessible, but they become financially inaccessible to mm -hmm. the neighborhoods that that experience them. And what about coming from Philadelphia? It's funny because I come from Philadelphia by way of the San Francisco Bay Area and Minneapolis and Connecticut. <laughs> so I feel like I've lived in almost every part of the U.S. now except for the South. It's, I feel so. I've been in LA for I think about seven years now. I still feel like a newcomer. I still feel like a baby Angelino. I feel like I'm still getting to know all the different communities within LA. Um, I mean, going back to this thought of visibility and invisibility, though, I it's funny because um, being an American of Asian descent, growing up in like the 70s and 80s on the East Coast, it's like I was always the most visible person everywhere I went. And, you know, you, you just grow up being accustomed to the feeling of having everyone look at you when you walk into a room and not because you're like the most attractive person or something, uh, just because you stand out the most everywhere you go. And when I moved to California, there was this huge relief that I sensed because all of a sudden, there are so many more people who either looked like me or more people who looked not like me in many different ways. At least in the major cities in California, there, there's not really one dominant ethnic um, group or you know, one group of people who stands out above anyone else. And I could just be myself. I could be a re. I didn't have to be like the Asian person in the room. I didn't have to be the voice of all Korean Americans. I didn't, yeah. You didn't have the people saying, oh, and where are you from? Well, I'm from Philly. <laughs> mm -hmm. And not having that be a surprise. So for me, there's like, a, it's this funny, um, it's like a combination of visibility and invisibility that moving to California afforded me. So in a, in a way, I become less visible as a person representative of my entire ethnic identity, but I become, in, in turn, the, that same I, ethnic identity is more visible within this environment that I inhabit. And how do you think your work intersects with that? Like, how does that, like your work today, like what's part of that, the, the differences, do you think, um, to deal with the sort of fragmented issues around identity and diaspora communities? I've kind of put that one a little bit to the side for now. The, the project that I did before this current one um, 
was in response to um, a number of years ago, I was invited by the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco to do an event or create a work in response to something either in their collection or with the institution or the community. They're, they left it very broad, which is very generous of them. And um, I was not an art major in college. I was actually an English major, but I took a lot of art history courses. But of course, in that um, in that education, um, at the time that I was in college, in the late 80s, early 90s, it was very focused on the Western canon. And, you know, you the, the intro course was history of art from prehistory to the Renaissance and then the Renaissance to the present. And, you know, it skips over so many cultures and so many art histories in favor of one story. And I never learned anything about Asian art. And, you know, here I am, an Asian American, and I'm being invited to do something with an Asian art museum. <laughs> and so I, I had to, I went in and I kind of looked around and I immersed myself in their collection. And the thing that really spoke to me was um, these objects called bajagis, which are quilt-like textiles that are pieced together out of little bits of leftover material from old clothing or other things around the house, and they were used for very utilitarian purposes. So they're used to like bundle up um, bedding when you're not using it, or like cover food before it's time to eat. I learned they're commonly made by women for uh, use in the household, and um, given as presents when women's daughter, when mother's daughters would get married. They'd make a whole bunch of these bojagis, give them to their daughters, and their daughters would then take them to their new households. And the way Korean society was set up at that time, women were pretty much based within their own sort of home compound and very rarely got to leave it. Maybe once a year they might get to go out on an outing and visit some of their other women friends or their um, extended families. And these bajagis became this expression, this creative expression, an expression of love for their, um, their daughters because they would stitch these messages into them too. There's like a certain stitch that means good luck and another one that is like prosperity. And it was really moving for me to learn about this, but like, it was like my entree into this, this whole cultural realm of art history and art objects was through something very common and domestic and very something that I, I as a human being could very much relate to. And so that was um, the beginning point of a body of work about piecing together bits of video that I um, had access to in an archive of Asian American family home movies from the Bay Area to create like a, a video response. It was kind of like a video bajagi for that community. And I felt like that was a very fruitful and meaningful um, kind of line of inquiry. And it's funny because even though it, uh, it wasn't a, an explicit connection at the time, now in retrospect I can see how this one connection to the textile um, aspect of that project was sort of a, almost like a, a connection to this body of work that I'm working on now with weavings and how weavings are also associated with women and, and done commonly by women and another activity that is not really valued as much as other activities. Like the bajagis were not seen as art objects, and yet now they're collected by, starting to be collected by museums. And, you know, weaving isn't, even though it's a very technical activity and it has the same sorts of roots as computer coding and involves many of the same sort of activities in your brain, it's not valued the same way that, that coding is and uh, working in the uh, computer industry is. So there are these, these kind of connections there. Hmm. Yeah, but I, I feel like that's something that I could return to in the future, going back to um, that um, the kind of the identity part of um, the, that interest that I have in my art practice. I'm, I'm kind of seeing where this, um, this current line of inquiry goes before kind of circling back to it. Hmm. But I, I feel like, I do feel like it all sort of connects in the end. Like we, as artists, we, f we follow something that, that our heart, our brains lead us to. And then it eventually, if it may not seem like it connects to something, but I feel like it eventually all does. Hmm. So I have faith in that. In that process. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, Jacqueline, can you talk a little bit about the, what we talked 
um, at the beginning in the first session, um, you talked about your uh, the form of protest and about often the 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 inability for institutions to change um, and and then during the break, we talked a little bit about some of those transformations that you were a part of, that you instigated. Can you talk a little bit about that? <clears throat> Sorry. Part of what my practice is is going to the gallery and then calling the space out and then um, tagging them and all of the artists who are participating in the show. All the work that I'm talking about lives on Instagram as a call-out post. And then all of the pictures and video are culminated into a video that I then show in art spaces that want to further the discussion about art and accessibility. There have been places that have taken the words that I post on Instagram and the different parts of when I'm talking during the videos, they've taken it into consideration into recognizing the fact that they are are participating in ableist activity and taking it upon themselves to change either their physical space or make parts of their programming in accessible spaces. And um, Gas Gallery is a gallery that is run out of a old, I guess, UPS truck, and they got they physically got fund they physically got a ramp that can give the disabled person access to their their gallery and their van, and they got funding. For that through a grant. Nicodeme Gallery recently moved, which is crazy because today is the first day that I'm going to go there. I'm going to go there today and it'll be the first time I'll be ever be able to go there. And it's for the Rima Hort Foundation benefit, which is going to be tonight. And I was one of the recipients of that award last year. And it was with this work that I won that award. And I'm going to be going to the benefit in a gallery that I made accessible since last year today. Wow. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> it's really funny because I, I hadn't thought about that. But yeah, so Nicodeme Gallery in Lou. Los Angeles Contemporary Archives still has their space upstairs, but they made their public programming and talks outside in their courtyard space. And then the pit, which is in Glendale, they got a ramp. Some of the places that become accessible, they message me or they DM me on Instagram, um, notifying me of their new accessibility. And I find, I think that it's great that they're notifying me, but I think that they want me to say thank you. And I'm going to, because I'm not thankful that they're finally making their space accessible after being inaccessible for five years. I don't feel like I need to thank them. I just tell them, I tell them thank you for doing the thing that they should have done originally, instead of thanking them for making the action that should have already been made, that would have not been made if my call out hadn't been brought it to their attention. There has been change through the work that I'm making. I think that most people think that it's just for me because I'm the one that's out there calling people out, but it's it's not just for me. It's not just for you. It's not just for yeah, me. Yeah, like in my in my other work, um, when I teach design thinking workshops, we focus on um, like the first part of that process is understanding the who it is you're designing for, and you interview people to understand their needs, but then you also interview people who are on the extremes of the, that spectrum of behavior that you're investigating. And so there are a lot of examples of things that were designed around someone with extreme needs that benefit everybody else who exists somewhere else along that spectrum. And like one of the examples that I cite is the curb cut. A curb cut, for those who don't know, is that dip in the corner of the sidewalk where when you cross the street, you can roll something down to the street level and roll back up to the sidewalk level on the other side. And those are mandated because of wheelchair access. But, you know, anyone who's like pushed a stroller benefits from those curb cuts. Anyone who has... Um, a bike and just needs to walk it across the street, benefits from those curb cuts. Anyone, you know, people who are maybe older and can't like walk as, uh, you know, lift their, their feet up as much, they benefit from those low, those curb cuts too. So many people benefit from the activities of people who live on the extremes and experience that on a much more acute level. So we all benefit from your efforts. And, and, and I don't mean to be crude or grim, but every able body is only temporary able body. Everybody can become disabled. And it doesn't, you don't have to be in a horrific accident you, or like contract some horrible disease. How do you sustain not just your practice, but also the visibility and issues around access for the communities that you engage in? What do you need for that? 
I mean, I think the only thing that is sustainable about being alive is generosity and kindness and to create love between individuals and that no matter how civilization shifts, if that exists, it will always be our saving grace. In the most dire conditions of survival, kindness between people is still possible and it's still what makes us human. So my kind of sustainable ethos comes very much from my auntie Kate Bornstein, who's like trans, you know, writer, theorist, cultural commentator. And her cardinal rule in life is that you can do whatever you want. You can rob a bank, you can do drugs, you can, you know, anything <laughs> as long as you're not mean and as long as you're not hurting somebody. So like that, and it's like, it sounds like a low bar, you know, like just don't be mean no matter what you do, but it's astounding at how many people are mean. You know, and, and that it's actually not a low bar at all, that there's people being mean every day, people running this country on Twitter being mean. You know what I mean? Like, it's pretty egregious. But if we can minimize the destruction we cause and the pain that we could potentially inflict on other people, um, in my view, that's the only sustainable way to be alive. People think that this area of my art practice is mean and that I participate in violent call-out culture by calling out spaces that are violently excluding me or segregating me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. What do you say about that? <laughs> I don't think that there's anything mean about it at all. I think that you're being, you know, really clear and direct and that that's not... Um, I mean, being mean is like if you're, you know, if it involves name calling, <laughs> yeah. involves, like... I mean, ableist is a, is, a, is a negative thing to be, and it is not like a positive thing, but mm -hmm. it's still like a truth. It's like a truth identifier of the activity that's participating. But I don't think that most people, like, it's not a word that's actively used that often. And when it is, it's like, I mean, it is like you're calling somebody a racist, but it's because you're being, like, you're, you're putting the able body in as a... As, as being more important than the mm. disabled body. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and like ableism exists, racism mm. exists. Yes, you yes, can't yes. talk around those things. <laughs> you can't create a new reality yeah. where Trump is not a racist. It's not yeah. possible, you know, like, so I think, yeah, I think just, <laughs> you can be respectful <laughs> yes, and yes, still I, challenge I somebody. I agree, I agree. You know, yes, like yes. you can respect everybody and still hold them accountable mm -hmm. to the ways that they're falling short. And I think to do that, you know, without being mean, I mean, it's, yeah, it's easy. It's easy to like, for people to be full of ego and to get offended okay. quickly and to just jump to that. But I don't know, like, I feel like as an artist, it, I am really discerning with information and to be able to read between the lines and to be able to really truly understand what somebody is saying, you can recognize bullshit so quickly. And you know what I mean? Like sometimes I turn on Fox News and I'm like, how just the information that's being given to people is, if you are just reading between the lines, even if you believe that it's true, there's still these gaping holes in logic where you just think, how is it that 49% of our country is not able to think critically about the information they're given to understand that it's false and that it's not an alternate truth or whatever the hell they call it. Like, truth exists. And I hear, like, people being so dismissive about truth sometimes as if, like, it no longer exists or it is this flexible thing. And I don't believe it for a second. Like, not for a second. <laughs> um, so I think really, like, you know, demanding, and I think a lot of it does have to do with um, how we consume news and how opinion-based news has kind of influenced objectivity. Um, and it's all led to this, like, extremely polarized society. But to actually, like, listen to, like, be able to identify pain, 
you know, and to be able to say, like, it hurts to be excluded, it hurts to be expelled or, you know, disallowed into a space. And to hold space for that, if you're in a place of privilege, to recognize, like, I benefit from the status quo, I benefit from the way that civilization is structured. What can I do when I, you know, hear the needs and the demands of people with less privilege than me? What can I do to lift them up? You know, the only way to really truly deconstruct systems of oppression are to uplift the people who are most oppressed in your immediate life. So how do you create, you know, we talked before about vulnerability and like to sort of step outside this room, for example, um, once a microphone's on, then it's the, it's just a very different way of composing oneself. But you began, Sandra, talking a little bit about the, a sort of a, a space in which you actually can be vulnerable and a space that can be, where you can be uninhibited in a, in a sense where you, can you talk a little bit about that, um, how you can get to that point through art, for example? Like I get it within a sort of certain environments, like a club environment, f- absolutely. Um, but I, I'm trying to figure out how to enact generosity um, and criticality and, and, and understanding that the criticality is also about connected to generosity and transformation, Ari, that you talked about, then reminds me of Sandra and the way you began about the sort of moment of, a moment where invisibility is precisely where you can experience something otherwise different. Well, I guess that kind of goes back to how I came into the realm of art, and it was through underground culture, and those spheres were collective spheres. So pretty much most of my adult life, I've to grow, I've always kind of sought out and have created um, collectives, uh, collaborative projects and spheres. Um, so I mean, I think that's part of my work and that's kind of part of my process. Like I always have like a, a reading group going on with artists or also lots lots of art, non-artists. I'm part of many different communities mm-hmm. are participating and creating in uh, autonomous um, schools. Uh, I think one of your previous guests, Michelle Dizon, uh, created Atlantis Edge, and I was a part of that that group. Growing up in North working class communities, Northeast LA, there weren't many art institutions. I really had no art education, but it was in youth-run autonomous spaces um, that I had access to art. And so we were kind of creating our own own infrastructure through collectives in the 90s and a kind of post-riot landscape. So it's like those spaces like where we ask questions together, we respond to the questions we're, we're grappling with, and we kind of we co-grow. Um, we, we share space and also through those projects, uh, lots of people come in and out. And so we're also kind of, that's how I was introduced to a lot of different political thoughts, points of views, uh, ideologies, um, concerns, um, and also lots of different creative uh, practices. Mm-hmm. That's really kind of how I've operated as an artist, as an artist, a small A, just one of, of many in, in collective spheres. Mm-hmm. I mean, all each of you have some aspect of organizing mm-hmm. um, as part of your practice, uh, like the weaving. For me, that is your, at that moment where at the beginning you talked about trying to figure out how that will manifest itself. And for me, that the key word there was something like a type of organizing that can happen and then also a different exchange economy that can happen within those circles, whether it's knowledge or sharing of resources or encouraging different perspectives through weaving. But organizing seems, it's not a word that a lot of artists tend to use, but, or at least the artists that say, I, the artists that I tend to think about organizing as a central component of their work um, to increase visibility, for example, or to sustain their work. It's through organizing and collaboration that that happens. 
Not to get too into semantics, but I think also, uh, you know, I think that, you know, to be an organizer is a very specific role. I think that everybody can be an activist um, and that, you know, as artists, we're, I think, a necessity for survival right now as activism and kind of like uh, scaring the horses, as it were, being you know, challenging people in, like, really open ways. And then I think that organizing is a very, to me, it's a very revered capacity, and it's people who have the unique commitment and dedication to creating, to building movements. And I've resisted for a long time identifying as an activist because I felt like it was somehow at odds with being an artist, like that art was about creating complexity, and that activism was about creating clear and concise points that everybody could identify with. And so I, I thought of it as like the language of art is really elitist and the language of activism is for the people. And I for think me, it, artist and organizer kind of went hand in hand because I didn't have access to infrastructure, arts mm -hmm. infrastructure. So we had to create that infrastructure mm -hmm. to be creative to make, um, and also to name and develop our own complexity. Mm -hmm. So yeah, for me, it wasn't a, a choice. It kind of went hand in hand. Hmm. Absolutely. I also think that so often of like, you know, artists who work in their studio alone, mm -hmm. and maybe they're organizing materials, but not necessarily organizing bodies, organizing social movements. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't want to become an activist, but I am now. I didn't think that I needed to be but I had to be for myself and for my community. I am an organizer within my own practice because I can't, all my physical work I can't make myself. I am an organizer. I am a studio manager when it comes to making my own physical art. But in order to make my art, I had to become an activist. Hmm. Yeah, I think that our circumstances often compel us to do things you wouldn't have thought as ourselves capable of mm -hmm. or needing to do before. Yeah. yeah. Right, and I think some of that um, ideas that have come out of these conversations is that addressing inequities, but also addressing deficits, and that that's been one of the key a key word that has come up is the artists uh, dealing with def deficiencies within the world around us mm -hmm. and how to imagine worlds otherwise. That's interesting that word deficit that you said came up because I, I think there is um, something I'm trying to do with where my artwork is going is create. There is definitely a deficit of imagining what everyone can be. We're talking about visibility of different communities or issues and how in, in larger society there's a deficit of imagination, like imagining um, what roles people can play, um, imagining which bodies are allowed to inhabit different spaces um, or have the right to access spaces, of course, or um, things like that. And I feel like one of the roles of artists, or at least one that I'm trying to grapple with, is creating the the positive image to counteract that deficit of an image, to create the model or the vision for that world that has a space for all these things, where all these different ways of being are taken as a given. You don't have to advocate for any of these things anymore because they exist in the popular imagination. Hmm. When I first started doing my project, I was hesitant and I got told by almost all photo faculty at CalArts not to make the work about protesting against art spaces um, because I thought I was going to, I don't want to have to continue making the work. I would like my project to be over, mm -hmm. but I keep having to make new work because it keeps happening. Like, there's more spaces that I keep finding about that are inaccessible, but I would like to stop it. I would like to be like, okay, this is the project's over, it's done, but it keeps happening. Right. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't mean for it to happen. It just, the work is still there. Right. <laughs> because the deficit is still there. And there is a kind of directness, I think, in the art world, too, where it's like, it's, yeah, not a multinational corporation where you're never going to talk to somebody who owns it. Like, you can actually yeah. talk to a gallery owner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. like, we could set an example. Like, the mm -hmm. artwork could actually set the example for other sectors of society. Yes. And I think that, actually, like, that's really... 
our institutions as a necessity to, for survival will have to advocate for all of us. Um, you know, A.L. Steiner and I this past summer were a part of an action to remove our work from the shed, which was at Hudson Yards, which is owned by a huge developer who has raised millions of dollars for Trump. And oh, it was. And it is physically inaccessible and was built that way, so there's stair access only to that building. Wow. Mm -hmm. And there has been. A, there's an active. There was a. There's another artist. Shit, I, I can't remember her name. It's Shannon. I think her name is Shannon Flanagan. And they did a sit-in at the that the, at the shed because there was a new, brand new building that was made completely stair accessible, and they did a sit-in with a bunch of disabled artists where they sat in front of the building, like like I do with my individual protests, but as a group of disabled artists, just to sit and say we would like to be able to come in, but we can't. That's, un that's unacceptable. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a brand right. new space that <laughs> yeah, opened like an hour new. ago. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, anyways. Um, <laughs> you know, it was, a, it was a small thing that we did, like pulling our work out, writing a statement, talking to the press <laughs> <laughs> about why, but it's sort of like, what, you know, we have to do what is in our, our power and capacity to do. And if we're not, then we are being complicit. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, like you can't know something and not act. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Your kind of tacit acceptance of injustice or of things not being accessible is mm -hmm. an endorsement of it. Mm -hmm. Yes. Issues around awareness and thinking to accept an invitation into a space without thinking about the politics of that space, mm -hmm. without thinking about the larger conditions that allow that space to be there or... Yeah. I mean, Nan Golden's activism around the pharmaceutical industry, I mean, look at how that on a national level has impacted all of these lawsuits against major pharmaceutical companies that have you know, created the opioid epidemic. I don't put it against somebody for taking the opportunity to show an ableist gallery because I know that they're still trying to take the opportunity to further their career, but they have to recognize the fact that that's what they're participating in. But I think that people will still always choose their career over, like, making the conscious choice because the person there was one of the one of the people who was in our first talk that i think the iranian artist like she just had a show at, at an inaccessible gallery and like we were dming each other and she was telling me that she was feeling so bad about doing it but like she it wasn't stopping her from actually doing the show even though like she was there at the conversation at the table having that discussion with us and agreeing with me that that is what an artist should do but they took the opportunity to show in the gallery Still. So, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I don't put it against people because, like, they're going to, they're trying to do it to further their career, but they're still participating in ableist activity and they're going to take that opportunity because it's for them, even though they know they're excluding me. So, I don't know. Or, uh, or art washing. Uh, oh, or art washing completely, like, washes out neighborhoods and, and, like, it, it invites, people with wealth and affluence or white people to come to that neighborhood and the, the community where the art washing is happening isn't actually ever invited back into it. And they don't feel comfortable either because they don't, they feel like they're being othered within their own community because this new white cube is in that space. So, yeah. I mean, are there models <laughs> to bring the community to participate? Like, is there a yes and kind of model? Like for your, your friend who, participate in that exhibition in the oh. inaccessible gallery, could she have said, hey, I, I would love to participate in this show. Can we make this accessible to everyone? What can we do? Can we rent a ramp? Mm -hmm. I mean, are there, are there ways to do that? Are we creating other models of operating as artists yeah. or being artists or how we work as artists or what we make and create and yeah. where that work work exists and how it circulates in the Yeah, world. I'm fascinated with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that individual ambition is central to capitalism. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the myth that we've all bought into, and it's very much the, the, the defining characteristic of republicanism is, like, individual <laughs> ambition. Yeah. And I think that democracy is about the collective good and that we have to, within our own microcosms, shift 
our own values towards the collective good because a future in which we continue to privilege individual ambition mm -hmm. is one in which there's a tremendous amount of scarcity and people without access to resources. I think we also, towards that end, we need to show how we are all connected, that there is no such thing as an individual good. There is, there's only collectivism. How you may think of a collective as some sort of anonymous giant conglomerate, but collective is made up of all of us. It's made up of individuals. And what's good for a, a collective body of people is good for the individuals within that body of collectivity. I think that's part of the, the root of this divisiveness. People, some people who may not be on board with all these, th these positions that we're espousing in our different ways may think, oh, well, if, if this thing gets promoted, then that means there's less for me. That means they're taking away something from me. When in reality, you know, like the curb cuts, if we give curb cuts, you know, in the name of uh, wheelchair accessibility, it, in reality, it helps everybody. Mm -hmm. How do we show everyone that it's good for all of us? It's because it's, if it's good for all of us, it's usually more expensive. And that's the part that nobody, that nobody wants to pay out for it to be good or inaccessible for everybody. Everybody, like every single body. <laughs> so it's, it's mostly yeah. it's because it's the bottom line is somebody's dollar. Somebody has to pay to make it better for everybody to be able to be included. So how do we get people to, uh, to see that the expenditure is worth it? Because it's ultimately that's what it is. It's like, how do you believe... I mean, trying to think outside of capitalism is hard when, like, our government is run on based off of money in that way, and access is definitely expensive. I mean, one way I think about is just the power of stories and the power of individual stories and knowing people who are within your circle of, you know, acquaintances and friends who these issues touch and impact deeply. Mm -hmm. like. You know, now I, I know you, Jacqueline, and every time I work with a gallery now, I'm going to think, is Jacqueline going to be able to see this show? I better make sure. That would be nice. I, <laughs> I agree. Yeah. <laughs> and, I can make that commitment on this podcast and in this room. Yeah, and just knowing that there's a human behind every issue. I mean, there are many humans, but even just knowing like one human, how that's going to affect that one human, how can that help promote that issue and make it more real for other people? Thank you all so much for the <laughs> conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for listening. If you want to learn more about the artists or join in the conversation, visit extraonline.org or find us on Instagram. We hope to bring you more of Artists and Rights soon. This series was made possible by generous support from California Arts Council, Arts and Public Media Grant, the Michael Asher Foundation, and KCET's Artbound, recorded at Catasonic Studios in Echo Park by Mark Wheaton with production assistance from Sarah Ellen Fowler and Theo Greenlee. Thanks to Shaolin Dub for our theme song. Thank you.